The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Sangha I see as largely 
out of date, or at least in, in need of some adaptation. We could use a lot of creativity. Unfortunately, our culture is kind of running into a dead end in that department. But hopefully we can get some creativity going and experimentation. And behind this are some large concerns, some of which will come out in the talk, though I don't plan to spend too much time on that. But in the background are major concerns, and I'll get to a couple of them very shortly. So I'm hoping, as I do in a number of places, to encourage thought and new thinking, creativity, as well as historical research into what is Sangha, what has Sangha been. Because most of the versions you'll hear of Sangha are fairly recent creations based on fairly recent, recent Asian models. And you almost never hear an accurate portrayal of what was going on in the Buddhist time because we, we don't actually get accurate history of the Buddhist life. We get a lot of made-up stuff that suited cultures three, five, ten centuries after the Buddha. And being Americans, we're, we're doing our own version of that. I'm sure the Germans and the Swedes and Lutherans and whoever are doing that. Maybe not the Lutherans, formerly. <laughs> My grandpa was a Lutheran, Swedish. Um, anyway, so I, I, there's a lot of information I'd love to go on and on about, but let's jump into the talk, and hopefully it'll start some thinking that will be useful for what's happening here and at Common Ground and around are, are parts of the Midwest, Upper Mississippi Valley, and so on. I'd like to contextualize just a little bit uh, from Mark's introduction. You've heard, or some of you already know, I, I had a pretty decent background in Buddhism, traditional form of Buddhism. Uh, re-examined by a leading Thai reformist thinker, teacher, practitioner. Uh, and so uh, part of my training was to learn to think about things in, in Buddhist terms. And that's something I try to offer in talks like this. So to contextualize the Sangha, uh, one way to do that is Sangha is one of the threefold, one aspect of the threefold gem or the triple refuge. The first of which is Buddha. Buddha being the awakened potential that most Buddhist traditions believe is inherent in all of us, or some would say in all life in all life forms. And I'll spare the metaphysical debates about does the floor have Buddha nature and so on. But 
there's not that much debate about, from a Buddhist perspective, in each of us is a potential for being being fully awake. And Buddha means awakened one. By the way, it does not mean enlightened one, unfortunately, despite that um, lousy word getting used so often. You'll notice I have a few biases and opinions. You don't have to agree with them or take them too seriously. I, I take them less and less seriously as I go on. But I still have a few. Uh, so Buddha is awakened one. The second facet of the triple gem is Dhamma. Dhamma being one nice way to understand that is the way things work how this universe on all levels or scales operates, cosmological, the psychology and experience of this moment, interrelationships, ecology. There are many scales to the universe or the world. And Dhamma is, and it is both teachings about how things work, and especially in Buddhism, because Dhamma is a pre-Buddhist word, it's, it's not owned by Buddhists, but the Buddhist take on Dhamma is it's especially about how suffering happens and how we can be free of suffering. And something relevant to tonight's talk, in my training, Dhamma is not something limited to a particular area of our life, say, meditation practice. You often hear in the West, Dhamma used in a, what I would say, an overly uh, limited or even atrophied way, where it's just about meditation, which is maybe fine for those people who aren't interested in the whole package of Buddhism and want the meditation piece to go with other other tools and perspectives they have. But in a standard Buddhist understanding, Dhamma is everything, literally. There's nothing that isn't Dhamma. And so these, these teachings are about all aspects of life. And that then gives some background to the way I'll approach Sangha. A simple translation of Sangha is community. Um, the prefix sang in Sangha is pretty much like the prefix kam in communication or sim in sympathy. It's something like together with. So Sangha is something that's done together. You can't be a Sangha by yourself. Um, it takes more than two. Uh, traditionally, in the monastic code, it takes four monks to make a Sangha. Um, so that's a little bit of context about Sangha. So my question is, the kind of big question I'm posing, what forms of Sangha do we need today? 
what forms of sangha are truly nurturing of our personal transformation out of a more or less individualistic, self-centered life to an increasingly unselfish, caring, compassionate life. And, you know, and that's about other people too, and it's very much about each of us. And I would like to add, what sort of sangha is helpful, or I would say necessary, for other scales of transformation, not just the personal scale, but um, various collective scales, including perhaps national transformation. And I'll be, I'm encouraging you to think about the various scales together, and I'll, I'll try to address that in a couple ways. For example, um, another question. Who among us feels sorrow about the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? Any sorrow? Any anger? Any guilt? Okay. So on one hand, we have a social, a big national or international, because the oil is going to get to a lot of other countries. There's even a slim chance of it getting to Europe, according to a study that just came out. Um, and personally, it's stirring up anger, sorrow, stuff in us which is suffering. And then there's going to be, there's massive economic, ecological, and other forms of suffering going on. Or who feels sorrow, anger about the wars going on in Iraq, Afghanistan, anybody? Okay. So, Kind of obvious to me, although historically Buddhists often try to sort of disengage or detach, that we we feel suffering about bigger forms of suffering, like the uh, the violence going on in Afghanistan or Palestine, Gaza Strip, that blockade thing. Um, all these sorts of issues, the whole drug and guns thing going on in the southwest, northern Mexico, all of these things are impacting humanity on a multiple of scales. Nuclear weapons, who's afraid about nuclear weapons? Kind of not as many hands went up, but on the Back burner. I'm reading an ex a book by Joanna Macy, A World is Love or World is Self, and she's worked on the issue of nuclear weapons because in the 70s and 80s we were, the fear of that was a lot more active. Um, it's kind of on the back burner, though, 
according to people like Joanna and some other stuff I've read recently, the issue hasn't actually gone away. It hasn't really improved. It's just we've got, <laughs> we've got some other things to suffer about right now. To look at this from this kind of messy interrelationship from some other angles, um, how many of you think personal greed has contributed to the oil spill? How many of you think that greed is operating only in the management of BP and their stockholders? <laughs> How many if nobody put their hand up? So it's a, a more pervasive greed than just that limited group. More or less? Okay. So. Or how much of our involvement in Afghanistan, Iraq is because people here in the Midwest or around the country are afraid of terrorists? Some of us may not think that's the real reason. But I, I do meet people. There's signs along the way of um, driving from Sparta up to Black River Falls. There are, there are signs on these dairy farms about terrorists coming to get us. There aren't that many, but there's a couple. So there are some people afraid of this. And, so to the extent that we've got these bigger things going on, like wars, and things like our greed for, say, Middle Eastern oil, or our need to project national pride and power around the world, that these happen on both the individual levels and various collective levels. <coughs> to the extent that we're caught up in, not all of us willingly, perhaps, on a lot of things I'd like to think I'm not personally uh, willing, but, but somehow I'm dragged along in things like these wars, the oil spills, uh, the whole immigration mess that goes on, not just on the border, but everywhere there's agriculture and um, cheap labor in cities like Chicago and probably probably here as well. And even small cities like near where I live. So that's my attempt to try to point to the inability to separate really the large collective levels of suffering from our personal suffering. And to me, that's the context of why we need Sangha. For that, I'll, I'll put it out as a suggestion for you to consider. But if there's truth in what I've been trying to point to by my questions and hints, that personal suffering and larger levels of suffering are feeding off of each other, supporting each other in fairly complex ways, then 
simply addressing these things on the personal level is perhaps doomed to failure, as well as merely addressing them through, say, national electoral politics, or even state-level or city-level politics. This isn't the time to try to, and I'm probably not the person, to try to go into details. But I would like to suggest that Sangha, for people who are interested in Buddhist practice, Buddhist teachings, meditation, Sangha is, and Sangha itself is a malleable term, Sangha is a way to both do our personal transformation work and in different ways be involved in larger scale transformation. And hopefully that will be a healthy transformation. Though it's my belief that right now the direction of transformation is a, a fairly scary one that's likely to lead to a lot of uh, violence, destruction, and pain. I can't prove that, but that's the drift that it seems to be going, at least from how I see it. The reason I see Sangha as a way to address or support, and I have to be careful here, it's not that Sangha replaces personal practice, but most of us are here because without some form of Sangha, the collective energy and work and money that built this place, hard work of a number of people, Mark over the years, but many others, this is something that's supporting all of us. So that's, that's one of the more tangible ways that without Sangha, the majority of us would be, well, we might, well, one, we wouldn't be here, but we may not be meditating. We might have more difficulties, but because of this Sangha, we've got more support, we've got more friends, we've got some guidance and leadership from the more senior practitioners, and, and so on. Another way I see Sangha as valuable for personal practice is um, I've, been, I've been reading some stuff on baby boomers lately, uh, just articles on the web. And I'm a, a kind of late baby boomer. I was born in 57. And it seems we baby boomers, and a few of you here are young enough to escape that label, but the majority probably are not. <laughs> um, we baby boomers have been an incredibly individualistic lot. And that's on top of the rather extreme individualism of American culture for going back to pre-revolution times. If you're um, a repentant baby boomer, or at least somewhat repentant about our 
extreme privilege and uh, individualism. And of course, there are some useful, healthy aspects to there are parts of individualism we could point to that are probably valuable, that at least I would not want to throw away, like an emphasis on thinking for yourself, um, taking responsibility for your own life, not having some clan um, poobah tell us what to do. So there are aspects of individualism I think are valuable. But I do think we've taken it too far. Sandha then, if you share that perspective, and don't feel obligated to, um, but you might want to consider it, <laughs> that if there seems to be some validity to that perspective, Sandha then is a place where our individualism rubs up against others within a context of a higher purpose. A Buddhist Sangha exists not just to meditate, but to help all of us be free of suffering. Meditation is part of the path, but the, the purpose is giving up suffering, which means giving up selfishness, which means restraining the self-centered aspects of individualism that uh, we, we still perpetuate. Sangha can be great for that. I, I had a number of years in monastic communities, which is one version of Sangha. And you have to live with people, some people who you don't particularly like, or you don't agree with, or they have obnoxious habits. Um, it's kind of like family, um, in some cases. And yet, if we commit to Dhamma, to liberation from suffering, we're willing to hang in with personalities and so on that, or even decisions that we don't fully agree with. At work, we do it often because of the pay. <coughs> Sometimes higher ideals as well. But in Sangha, we're not getting paid for the most part, to my knowledge. And so it's, it's for some higher purposes. And that's, that can be a crucial part of practice. And then finally, and these are just three of, of many, I believe, or hope, that healthy sanghas, not just imitating old forms, but healthy, vibrant sanghas that really work for our time and place, are one way to bring some creativity, some new life, into what seems to be a pretty stagnant mainstream culture that's just a bunch of lemmings going off a cliff. Sorry, that's a little hard point, but I'm trying to be brief. Um, we really need alternatives, and alternatives that aren't just more power-grabbing or greed or hatred, but alternatives that are grounded in something more healthy and more compassionate. It seems to me sanghas can do that.
we may not be big. That's the way it is. We don't have to have a lot of money. But whatever we've got, we pull it together and hopefully present something to the larger society that can be helpful in times that are kind of stressed out. So then, what forms of sangha do we need today and in the next 10, 20 years? Let's, um, the oil spills, another sign that we're running out of petroleum. And so they're drilling in places like, you know, a mile deep. They were going to go and do it up in Alaska, even more risky, because it's running out. A lot of people just don't want to hear about it. It's inconvenient. But um, that's going to be impacting us more and more over the next 10, 20 years. Either we get more nasty spills and horrible pollution, or the price keeps going up. What are we going to do about that? Um, that's going to radically change the food we eat, how we spend our free time, whether somebody like me can drive a car up here all by myself, you know, almost 200 miles each way. And it could mean a lot of starvation because we've created an agriculture system that's really dependent on oil. And then now we've got almost 7 billion people dependent on it. Some of us do the organic thing, but that ain't going to feed 7 billion people, or 9 billion, whatever we'll be at in 20, 30 years. And then if global warming turns out to be true, and it's true so far, um, nobody knows exactly where it's going, more big changes. These, and pick your other concerns, what is the kind of sangha we need today? I don't know. That's why I like to go around asking these questions. It's partly a way to think out loud, partly to try to engage, and hopefully we'll all be exploring this in our various ways. One way, though, I can at least think of to begin answering this question is how do we take care? Um, there's a teaching I really like on Sangha that shows up in a couple places in the early teachings. One, one's in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And there are six qualities or factors for living together in concord. And it's clearly a Sangha teaching. And the six things boil down to caring in three different ways and sharing in three different ways. So for simplicity, I'll, I'll boil it down to caring and sharing. So to begin asking what sort of sangha we need is how are we going to take care of ourselves? And that has various levels. I've already brought up food, health care, aging, um, entertainment, 
how do we take care of ourselves? Are we just going to be doing it alone, individualistically, as we age, as the healthcare system goes more and more off the rails and becomes increasingly um, unjust? How are we going to deal with these things? For ourselves, as individuals and our families, for each other, and uh, for the larger eco-society, the eco-social, ecological systems in which we live. Having reframed the question a little bit, let me put out um, some pieces that I think will be important in working this out. And I'll start with one that goes to right to the heart of being an American property. Um, I'm reading a wonderful novel by, if I can say his name right, Peter Mathieson. Huh? Yeah. Mathis, that's how you say it. It's called The Shadow Country. It's about, um, it's about a lot of things, family, violence, passion, um, and the ecological destruction of Southern California, and property, personal property, treating nature as our property is, is a big part of it. And they're, they're so-called rednecks, you know, talking about that's what makes America great. You know, a man can grab some property and fight over it. <laughs> so, I mentioned caring and sharing. One of the aspects of sharing is sharing property. Western culture, going back to the Romans, gave a certain importance to private property. And in America, that, that became sacrosanct. In my part of Wisconsin, there's a lot of people, you know, this is my property, I can do whatever I want with it. Maybe it's time to uh, move on which would be pretty radical or subversive in America. Maybe it's socialist, I don't know. But can we start to question this blind nature of adherence to personal property as sacred? Now, if we're in a place like this, to some extent, you know, we've all donated. We've all given. So maybe we're willing to take some steps to question private property. How far do we need to go with that? I don't know. I'm not saying we need a total communist setup. But some of the issues I've been raising, it seems to me, are our obsession with private property has a role. I'm not putting all the blame on one factor, but just saying it seems they have a role. And if that's to some extent true, then how far are we willing to go with Sangha 
as a way to relax our grip on private property. And because this is a, a meditative group, I'm not so much talking about physical grip or even legal grip, but the mental grip on my stuff, my house, my car, my zafu, my whatever. But maybe some of the legal, physical grip as well. Another piece, what about decision making? This is one of the things that is always uh, a pain in the butt about Sangha. Decisions have to be made. And people are, there are always some people unhappy with the decisions. There's a model which was common in most of Asia for a long time to use a very hierarchical feudal setup where power was at the top, the abbot or whoever would make decisions, just like the king would make the decisions in the feudal society, and then everybody would go along. And by the way, this is one of the non-historical things projected onto the Buddha. Um, if you've, have you ever heard the, that the Buddha was a prince? It's almost impossible that that could be true. It's ahistorical. But it was very handy for the Buddhist kingdoms 500 and 1,000 years later to project back that the way things are now, i.e. 500, 700 years after the, the Buddha, to assume that's how it was in the Buddhist time. And then you could pretend that the hierarchical structure that we've got is what the Buddha was doing. But there's, there's no evidence that that's actually true and what historical evidence there is points to a much less hierarchical um, background for both the Buddha and the original monastic setup. And there's no way the Buddha's father was a king, so the Buddha couldn't have been a prince. The Buddha's father was more like a chief. And so the Buddha was like, you know, junior chief in training or something, but, but not a prince. And he never lived in a palace. Nobody where he came from had palaces. That's more non-historical stuff that got made up. So, so anyway, there's that kind of feudal, hierarchical power at the top that's not that much followed. Well, actually, some of the big meditation centers are kind of like that. There's somebody in the background who kind of makes decisions. So it happens here as well, but is that the kind of power structure we want? Do we want decisions to be made by um, the abbot, the boss, the big teacher, however we might name the person? What kind of decision-making would actually would best enable us to take care of ourselves, each other, and the world around us? 
and I'll, I'll mention healthcare and aging. As we get older, are we all going to be kind of in our single family dwellings? Which is pretty much a historical anomaly and it, it may be unsustainable. <coughs> I, I think it is. And I, I'm even more sure it's unhealthy. But that's what we're used to. Seems to me another area to look into Sangha as a way, especially those of us who are getting gray, us baby boomers again. Do we have the guts to actually learn to live together so that as we get older we're not soaking up huge amounts of resources which probably won't be available anyway. So how are we going to deal with old age and, and the care we need as the system falls apart? Maybe it won't, but I'm not willing to, I'm not keen on depending on it holding together. So these are uh, some thoughts and questions I'd like to put out. I'll conclude, if conclusion is the right word for this kind of a talk, with a few things of what we're trying to do at Liberation Park. Um, because these are my own current thoughts of what I'm, I'm trying to do around Sangha, at least three key areas. One is Liberation Park as a Dhamma refuge where some people can live and other people can come and practice and enjoy caring for the land, gardening, hanging out with birds, meditating, studying, and things like that. So we're hoping that Liberation Park uh, grows as a Sangha. Currently it's a Sangha of two humans, three horses, six, we just got six ducks and two geese. The geese are really cool. Um, they're still kind of little. Um, and various uh, feral and wild creatures. It's also an experiment. It's influenced by the monastery where I lived for many years and what I've learned from Thai monasticism. But it also doesn't want to do all the monastic things. So, and trying to learn from Catholic workers and various other forms of spiritual community as well as trying to be ecologically sustainable, growing some of our own food, being somewhat less dependent on petroleum, and so on. So that's one level of Sangha that I'm putting a lot of time and energy into. A second is um, kind of part of me being here. I believe, although I'm not sure why, <laughs> but I believe that centers like Common Ground, Liberation Park, 
of the center in Rock, Rochester, other groups in this part of the Midwest, as well as other parts of the country, that if we can have some interactions, exchanges, hopefully it'll be for the better. Although I was thinking, well, why do I believe that's a good thing? And right now I can't say why. I just believe it's a good thing, so I put some energy into it. Down in Chicago, Madison, Milwaukee, I'm Eau Claire, and some other places. And maybe someday I'll figure out if it is a good thing. But so far, I enjoy it. <laughs> and I should admit it's also partly how I make a living. So. The third area is um, given the state of national politics these days, or even levels of conflict I see going on in the state of Wisconsin, in the Monroe County where I live, or even the township, Ridgeville Township in Monroe County where we live. The level of conflict and the inability of people who disagree to have meaningful, constructive conversations. This seems to be a, a a big obstacle to finding healthy, creative ways forward. So something I'm in the very, very beginning stages of and in talking with people in our, our county and our part of Wisconsin, which is part of the Driftless region, which <coughs> comes almost to uh, the Twin Cities. It's, it's um, along both sides of the Mississippi, goes down into northern Illinois, part of Iowa, and two-thirds of it's in Wisconsin. And it's a, it's a bioregion, and the La Crosse-Winona area is kind of in the middle of it, and we're on the edge of that. It seems to me that there are some nice, good initiatives going on that I'd like to be involved in that can start approaching our, our issues like food security, agriculture are big issues where I am healthcare, poverty, immigration. How can we face these issues together? So this is a bigger level of Sangha. Um, how can we face these issues where we learn to put aside some of our opinions, ideologies? And so I'm, I'm looking for ways and talking with people about ways to build bridges. Um, like one idea that some of us are looking at is going around posing the question, what do we like about living here? You know, assuming that people have chosen to be where they are, or what do we love about this place? And out of questions like that, instead of arguing about the usual partisan stuff, trying to find basis, okay, we love this place maybe for different reasons, but we care about it. And can, can we start to take that on as a shared commonality? It seems to me, given the way the, 
We'll need alternative media to do that. We'll need uh, religious groups that are willing to go outside their normal areas of comfort. Artists to to kind of shift the way we talk about things. And so that's a, another area I'm interested in, in trying to put some energy into though most of my energy goes into either teaching or building liberation park but I feel some energy needs to go into these this larger level of sangha because like for example um, if we're not helping to take care of the larger area in 10 or 15 years, there could be a huge mega dairy farm just up the road from us and all kinds of manure ruining our place. Because that's, there's a lot of money in Wisconsin right now pushing, and in Minnesota too, for huge dairy farms. Because some people can make a lot of money, but they ruin, they ruin the ecology and they'll ruin rural communities and Liberation Park might not be so pleasant if there's a lot of manure running through. So that's not the only reason I want to be involved in things, but I consider that some uh, healthy self-interest as well. So Thoughts, questions, no answers? A few opinions. Um, take it for what it's worth. And uh, now it's everybody else's turn to add what you'd like to the the topic. Uh, my example, I've had the opportunity to participate in songs, as I understand it, people saying Sadakara on kind of a broader basis that it's not just this community or community of Buddhist practitioners, but it's in a wider sense any community that's trying to address social or personal transformation. And one of them uh, was, was the 12 Step Fellowship. And that actually took all me here. And it's, I think it has interesting applications for Sangha. And, uh, uh, especially the aspect of fellowship that could benefit us toward and uh, starting to address more of the social transformation issues. Uh, the other one is, is, the, uh, is the labor movement. It's been my employment for a lot of years, and uh, it's no longer the movement once was, obviously, but it is the opportunity for people to come together and to try to decentralize decision-making in some models and, uh, and, and accomplish things that way. I recently had the opportunity to uh, work on a conservation issue involving mining in northeastern Minnesota with uh, trying to do some mining of heavy metals. And uh, I tried to do something at the State Democratic Convention. And what you were saying about trying to bring people together really rang, uh, resonated with me, because on the one hand, you have the strict conservationists who would say, absolutely no mining, we can't ever do that. On the other hand, 
you have the people in Northeastern Minnesota saying, we want money because we want those jobs no matter what. And to try and find a common ground, they say, well, we can't have money provided that we're able to do it safely and environmentally consciously, and to try and get the discussion going in that direction was, was, uh, was a very interesting process for me. And where I'm going with all this is that I think I'm more effective in all three of those larger considered sanghas as a result of being in a sangha like this that is involved in personal transformation because what I get from this allows me to operate in, in more open and uh, less competitive way, in a more compassionate way, and to live the world I want to, I want to see and, and to try to do that. And, and I think by setting examples, each of us going out and doing what we can through the existing structures that are already there. There are lots of conservation movements. There are lots of political movements addressing poverty, addressing healthcare, addressing these things. And my sense is that we don't need new structures. What we need to do is engage ourselves in our personal practices and then take that with us into the structures that are already open. So that's my comment. Yeah, and part of what you're saying, I think, is that part of our reality today, most of us participate in various kinds of communities, and they may be overlapping. But unlike a agrarian Buddhist of 100 years ago, or even a rural Midwest farmer, where you had your, your immediate village and church, we have a variety of different sanghas, community structures that we're involved in. And that's, that's probably the way it's going to be for a while for most of us. And so that would be part of trying to understand what's going on and how we we move through these. For your last part, I'd like to say, though, we may not need many new structures, but a lot of the existing structures are getting inflexible. And you, you actually gave some examples of some of them that are ideologically rigid. Whereas like 12-step, when it works well, is not. But then there are 12-step groups that get kind of stuck from what I've heard. Which is true of you know, any movement or whatever. Excuse me. You just touched on, on my idea. And that is, I've always, for many years now, been impressed with processes that went on out in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon, Washington, Idaho, where they had really some big environmental issues that were contested by people who were potentially uh, losing their jobs. So they did clear-cutting for one, uh, spotted owls. Um, there were the environmentalists who were there to stop all that temper. And on the other side, of course, was the lumber industry. And they needed those jobs. It took a long time for these people to work together, but they kept working together. And as they worked longer and longer, for year, two years, three years, they developed trust and respect of each other. They didn't agree with each other, but they could understand where the other person was coming from. 
had from that, things got done. They were able to make compromises. It's always fascinated me that we don't all, we can't all do that in our things together. Have opposing views, mellow out, and learn to respect them. Mm -hmm. Maybe it just takes a long time of meetings. Yeah. Although there are, there's research going on and some initiatives to better understand this process so it doesn't have to take quite so long. And um, as I alluded to earlier, artists, alternative media can have a big role because our current mass media tends to like presenting everything in a simplistic and polarized form, which makes it much harder to do what you're describing because it doesn't really ask what do you really care about. You know, it argues. So. Um, I don't doubt that our Western was part of that struggle. We talked more about that in some things. Maybe you can go that into it But uh, I do think that listening to people is one of the most powerful things we can do. And I mean people who have very different points of view. <laughs> But I also wanted to ask you what the source for the scholarship is on the Buddha not being a prince. Because I'd like to investigate that. Mm -hmm. um, if you email me, I'll, I've, got a, I've sent this information to other people so I can send you some links and references. One book, the book there really. Um, got me started on that is called The Human Way of Liberation by a Sri Lankan named Nalin Swaris, S-W-A-R-I-S. It, it can only be ordered from Sri Lanka, although some of us are working on getting it published here in the States. And he bases his work on some Indian historians, primarily Didi Kosambi and Romila Farpar, I think her name is, who are... It'd be interesting to put together some of those sources of all the scholarship and make that available because it's so different. The Suarez book is a summary of the more basic research done by the historians. He's a sociologist, a former Catholic priest who now Buddhist. Yeah. Pretty interesting guy. I don't know him personally. But email me at um, santi, S-A-N-T-I at liberationpark.org and I can send you the links and stuff. Thank you. The thing that you enumerated, we, we all respond to them with a version. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think about the, the situations that you named, you know, most deliberate with you, and I sort of see this problem of right view in these situations, that right view is my view. <laughs> and uh, being kind of attached to my reading of the situation. And like you mentioned, 
know, you can talk to people and I'm just not interested in alternate explanations of the BP oil issue. I'm pretty clear that I should have the answer that leading to more suffering. And there's a way to get constricted around that. And I I wonder um, what thoughts you have about attachment to you in these situations. Well, I think at one level, the to the extent it's allowed out into the, the media, it's clear a huge amount of suffering is coming out of this. I don't think any intelligent person's denying that. The denials are more in the blaming and who's going to pay for it and stuff like that. So I think at one level, it's just realistic to say this is doing a huge amount of damage. Now, to pretend that this is the only thing doing damage, that would be wrong view. But that a lot of harm is happening seems to be clear cut. But where it's murky, and then and the blaming part, that's not my interest. But what do we? What is our response? That's where. Who knows? And maybe, you know, the federal government is, I believe, necessary, not everybody agrees, for organizing certain kinds of response, because they can pull together and channel resources in ways individuals and volunteers can't, or that the market system cannot do. But they're also extremely limited by by their constraints. So then there's all the nonprofits, there are individuals. Well, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Um, I think if we remain open minded, okay, these are really complex situations the ecology, the economics, the politics. So I come to the perspective or view or opinion, nobody really knows what's going on. One of our problems is people have to pretend, like Obama has to pretend he's in charge, just like his predecessor. When in fact, nobody's in charge, nobody really knows what's going on. Some people are very clear about pieces, but we've created as a species this huge complex system and nature was pretty complex anyway. So if we can, you know, be humble and just work from whatever knowledge, intellectual experience, resources, and friends and relationships we've got to do what we can do personally and in our groups and wherever we're connected up. And not to be, be too busy criticizing what others are doing unless it's clear they're doing harm. Does that help? I mean, there are, so basically I'm trying to say, I think there are areas where certain views are more or less based in fact. But the future and how we respond is 
maybe pretty open. But in a couple of the examples that have been mentioned, if we start out with a fixed view, then that shuts down creativity, which, and that's what I think is generally happening on the national level in this country. There are too many things that cannot be questioned. The, the market system cannot be questioned. Military adventurism and imperialism cannot be questioned. Pentagon budgets are not really questioned, etc., etc., etc. So um, hopefully we can avoid getting stuck in even like the people all mining is bad. Well, maybe it is, but that's not going to be of any use to just hold to that opinion. Even if one thinks it's true, if we want to actually look for improvement, we got to, as a few people have said, talk. So it's kind of a rambling response. I hope something coherent was in there. Uh, I'm Dan, and um, my question, thought, is, is kind of an extension of hers. I've phrased it real well. Um, and, and being not as experienced with Buddhist practices, perhaps you are, it's a real challenge sometimes for me to maintain equanimity in these processes, you know. And especially in our system as a whole, it's, it's really graced to provoke reaction. And, you know, if we're going to have a, a Sangha community where we're going to interact and learn off of each other, uh, the equanimity part is really important. So, just a thought, you know, um, you know, do you have any thoughts about that? how to maintain the equanimity in, in the process of all this? Or, you know, the, um, yeah, I'll just kind of leave it go with that and its place in that, you know, um, especially in terms of when you get into these. Uh, I'll say this much, that in our system, it seems like we're, we're girded for going for broke all the time. So having that standoff seems so important to both sides. And that just comes with equanimity. I think it comes through a lot Well, adversarial relationships are prominent in many arenas of American life. Sports, the legal system, and others. So, um, one, the first thing that comes to mind as you were talking is don't enshrine equanimity as a should or a must because we will, we're going to have reactions. And to some extent, if we're not reacting, we don't care. And so that's a trap to get into this non-reactive, not caring, and call that equanimity. That's actually indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. So accept that people are going to react. But if in a sangha like this, some people are mindful enough and grounded enough that their reactivity is low or limited, that, uh, that creates a container in space. 
So there are going to be emotions, there are going to be reactions when some difficult issues are addressed. That's life. Um, I and others, off, well often, it, I went through this and then later I would see other people, they'd come to the monastery and they'd be shocked that monks would get angry or disagree or have arguments. And so there's this kind of projection on the Buddhist monks that there's some, basically they're inhuman. You know, some not very well thought out projection of, in, they must be enlightened so, you know, ABCD just won't happen. It's, totally unrealistic and so so I learned okay a healthy community is not a community without conflict and all that it's a community that can deal with its conflict so having that's actually a kind of equanimity about non-equanimity <laughs> and not getting ideological. This goes back to, um, don't know her name, but Greta. Greta's comment question. I have family members who are into the Tea Party movement and stuff like that, which I don't personally care for. And yet I was going to be spending time with them. And I caught myself I was on retreat just before, and so I caught myself getting into what Greta was bringing up. You know, I was so into my right perspective on stuff. And how could an intelligent person believe that stuff? And so, and then all of a sudden it was obvious I was more into being right or having the right analysis, you know, my, when I flirted with Marxism years ago. You know, got to have the right analysis or, or the right information, read the right websites. That's a dead end. That's to be trapped in ideology. And we can do that with anything where, like um, in some monastic settings I've been involved in, you know, the kind of dirtiest little cut you could you could do is, oh, he's too attached. You know, because everybody knows Dhamma practice is about letting go, so you just kind of, so you insinuate that they're an inferior practitioner. That's cheap, you know. <laughs> but that's the kind of cheap stuff that goes on in, say, monastic communities. <laughs> Or Vipassana teacher councils when they're gossiping about whoever's not there and stuff like that. <laughs> so if we can catch ourselves around this stuff and, and not try anything like even equanimity as an absolute, that's fundamental, fundamental. That's important in the Buddha's teaching. Not creating or reifying absolutes out of our own ideas and values. Sure, equanimity is important, but if we just try to grab onto that one, 
it becomes a can cause trouble. I think we have time for one more question. Any, any, any more? Can we do two? Yeah. Okay. Two last questions. I'm Jesus. This question comes from my having walked part of the way down a road that you walked a long way. Um, you went to Thailand in 
have been turned upside down by the introduction of electricity, roads, TVs. So, so um, I don't really think in terms of how you first pose the question, what does that model have to offer? Yeah, I, we need to sit down for a longer talk to get into that. Um, what I do look at is places like Suanmok and certain monasteries that were not just doing things in the old way, but were engaging with the changes that were happening. And so I think there are things we can learn from them. We can, but um, realistically, a group like this, you know, it's not a residential community, not a bunch of monks surrounded by rice farms. So it's, I think that's all I can say now with, with uh, just rambling. So, but I'm happy to talk in detail another time. Yes. Ted, the communities have historically been very geographically based. And as we grow under information age, it's, we're becoming more globalized. And building up what Tom was saying earlier with people being a little more willing to see the other guy's point of view. Is it your sense that as we do become more globalized that we're more willing to see the other's point of view or are we just getting polarized faster? Do you have a sense of what direction that seems to be? I have a sense picked up from the kind of websites I go to. <laughs> and that sense is, you know, and stuff like based on Pew research and, you know, some of those kind of things, that like online community allows people to interact with people who more or less agree with them. Yeah, we have idea-based communities geography-based. Right. And to me, to a certain extent, that's Great. I mean, I like taking advantage of it, but I, I'm very suspicious that the idea that we can jettison actual face-to-face -face interaction where you can touch and even smell people, um, the idea that we would only interact through media is scary to me. I could be wrong. But a little reading I've done in Stephen Pinker, Evolutionary Psychology, you know, we did not evolve to interact through glass screens and keyboards. So we're really pushing our brains and our evolutionary makeup way beyond what they were originally evolved for. And that could explain some of our stuckness these days. But, but that's all dependent on the stuff I read. <laughs> <laughs>
And so I don't have a huge level of confidence in being right or anything. So I believe we've achieved the mandatory closing time. <laughs> Thanks again, Tati Carl, for being here, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.